Hello everyone. This is a Compot. We have a new Tech Wars episode going on right now. We're starting up with E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones has been uh, good enough to come here with us. And you, you can hear me okay, right? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay. We've been having some audio difficulties, but I think we got sorted out now, hopefully. Um, but, you know, Dr. Jones has written a variety of books. He's covered a lot of different topics. The book that I think that I really like of yours is Slaughter of the Cities. I think that's a really amazing one. Good, good. I'm glad you like it. But I also wanted to talk to you about this book, Tolkien's Quest. Yes. Tolkien's Failed Quest, I think is the title. Is that right? Yes. Because I've gotten into a lot of, like, I've, I've said some things about fantasy. I sent you an essay that I wrote about fantasy. Right, yes. And I feel like commercialized, like, modern fantasy has, like, totally failed. And it's, like, totally diverged from what fantasy was when it was created like in the 19th century and then like I think that plays into a lot about like the way that fantasies used were like the way that people like Tolkien wanted to use fantasy to create sort of like a modern mythology to like base society around yes and now it's just turned into like this completely commercialized thing where all of our you know, the fantasy project has been co-opted by a lot of, like, commercial forces, and now it's part of, like, this overall, you know, Disney culture that, yeah. you like know... Game of Thrones. Exactly, yeah, like Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah. I was talking in the essay about um, Ocean. I don't, are you familiar with... Yes, yes. McPherson, I think, is a really important understanding how Scottish identity was created. Yes, yes. Let, 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 me, let me begin at the beginning here, uh, okay, because I just covered this in my Logos book, uh, which will be coming out, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality, okay, there has never been a time when man did not have a language, because man began ipso facto uh, by speaking, that was the first human being, you would recognizable by the fact that he spoke. That language, every language contained a, a word for God. Uh, and God, according to the most primitive, virtually every culture in the world, God was a being who lived in the sky, and he was a father. Everyone knew that. Now, at that point, uh, man's curiosity wanted to know more. And in order to know more, uh, the, the first men uh, began to speculate. Now, I'm not talking about Adam, who was the first man. I'm talking about the people who existed after the fall, who lived in barbarism, uh, and whose minds were darkened by original sin, but who still retained that uh, gift of language and still retained their rationality and then started to have to come back and how are we going to build our way, dig our way out of this mess, you know, climb out of the hole that we find ourselves in. Uh, so God uh, was a father and he lived in the sky. Dios Pater is the uh, Indo-European root. Uh, we, we get Jupiter from that and we get Zeus, which comes from Zeus Pater. So what do you do? You start to speculate, and you start to speculate along these lines. Well, if God's a father, he must have a beard. 
because every father I know has a beard. And so therefore God has a beard. And so now we have an image of God. And if God's a father, well, he must have a wife because every father I know has a wife, a mother, and the two of them get together and they create children. So now we have a, a God who is a father and who is a wife, has a wife and he's got a beard. And at this point, uh, humanity headed down the rabbit hole, okay, because you're now on the wrong track, okay? You took an idea, uh, you, t you tried to develop it as best you could with your fallen reason, and you made a wrong turn. And the name of this wrong turn is mythology. And the culmination of mythology would be something like Homer's poem, The Iliad. You could also talk about uh, Gilgamesh, uh, another early, one of the earliest pieces of literature. Uh, but uh, mythology uh, is synonymous with something like Homer's Iliad. Now, and what do you think of like uh, theogony and? Uh... You can do that. You could take Hesiod also as an example. That's well, right. You're absolutely right. Because like somebody uh, like uh, Schelling writes about how uh, the genealogy of the gods is like the original genealogy of concepts or like metaphysical categories. Yeah, uh, I would say it's the opposite, <laughs> but that's my distinction from Shelley. Okay, I think I think that once once you headed down that road, you were you were bound to fail, and mythology failed. Uh, it failed at the time that the 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 um, this failure became apparent at the time of Socrates, uh, who said basically that uh, we should ban poetry because poetry is based on mythology, and mythology are all these tales about gods behaving badly. And we know that God does not behave badly. That's a contradiction in terms. So all of this poetry, this literature, is corrupting youth, and so therefore we should ban it. You know, he and, also he also talks about um, how there's really no such thing as authorship and that poets are divinely inspired. I mean, would you say that like there was divine inspiration behind the creation of myths? Uh, in, in some sense, I suppose, we would call this uh, logoi spermaticoi, and God left uh, traces of his creation in the creature, and these creatures were, were working with these things. And so there is some, there is some type of value, I think, to, to mythology, and uh, I, I have people, lots of people have come up with, you know, isn't that what uh, Star Wars is all about? It took uh, basically uh, the Golden Bough or then Fletcher, all these analyses of mythology that sort of sprang up at the end of the 19th century and tried to see what truth there was in them. And it turns out that there is some type of truth. So Addis and Osiris is in, in many ways an archetype of, of Jesus Christ. There is a dying God who's going to come back to life again. And that is an archetype, a, a logos spermaticos, an anticipation of the full revelation which will come with Jesus Christ. We were, we, our last show that we did was with Jay Dyer, and we were talking to him about like exactly like how Star Wars, I mean, it, it basically serves the function of religious function within our society, within like our global neoliberal societies that Star Wars is like 
our myth that holds it all together. And is that just like, so a divine inspiration of like some stories at the heart of that mythology? I mean, how how is it getting corrupted so bad? I mean, is there a possibility that something like Star Wars leads people to like actual religion? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's a diversion from religion. Uh, and I think that, I think that what we're seeing here is something similar to the neo-pagan revival you're seeing in Scandinavian countries where the uh, people who were raised as Protestants suddenly realized that the Protestant church just evaporated and they have no identity. They're throwing around for an identity and they come across, well, I guess I'm white and I guess uh, I, I have a pre-Christian identity and I believe in Thor. So I just I just had this debate with this on pornography. One of the guys who types in the comment box says, uh, "I'm an I'm an atheist, but I'm sympathetic to the religion pagan religion." Well, which is it? <laughs> and he got he got grilled. He got he got battered in the comment box by people who saw the illogicality of what what you're talking about. So at this point, there maybe there was a time when there was some Swede who sincerely believed in Thor. Well, those days are gone. You can't do that. And so what you have now is basically sexual degenerates who don't want to believe in Christianity, but feel there's some type of spiritual purpose to the universe. And they try to shoehorn it into obsolete stories, myths, uh, obsolete uh, mythologies that no one can believe in anymore. What do you think about uh, black metal and Varg? Are you are you aware of Varg? No. Tell me about Varg. He is a black metal uh, musician uh, who very famously he killed one of like a fellow musician in a very controversial event uh, where he said it was like a sort of premeditated self-defense where this other guy was going to kill him so he killed him first. Uh, but, you know, he went to prison and then now he's a big pagan. He's like one of the, I think, like the biggest pagan, uh, you know, sort of proponent on the Internet today. He has he has a really large following. The black yeah. metal projects he was in were very popular. Yeah. Well, that type of paganism is uh, some form of devil worship. You can, I don't think you can be a sincere pagan anymore. They did they, burn. You, down, they burned down churches. Yeah, well, that gives you some indication of what this is all about. It's the same. It's similar to the white boys. You know, why are you a white boy? Well, because you're a Protestant and doesn't go to church anymore. And in addition to that, you want to act out your sexual impulses without any type of uh, guilt. Uh, and you're going to say that the guilt only came from Christianity. And so you become an enemy of Christianity. This is the modern psychological profile of the pagan. Uh there's no, I, I don't see any sincerity in this whatsoever because nobody can be this stupid anymore. You can't pretend that you don't know things. And one of the things that you do know is that Jesus Christ is God and that there is a thing called the Trinity and all this type of stuff. You may not have gotten good instruction, but this is part of what everybody knows in this world. And either you uh, accept it or you reject it, but you can't pretend that you don't know it as some sincere pagan might have done in, let's say, Scandinavia in 500 BC. Can't go back. Is there any difference between people who try to 
uh, supplant religion with Star Wars and people who are pagans, neo-pagans? Is it like exactly the same thing, basically? I, th I think it's the same thing. I mean, some might be more sinister form than others, but I think that actually there are people who dress up as Star Wars figures. Yeah, uh, uh, there's a whole cosplay. Like you uh, are probably you're way above this this sort of thing, but like with the new Star Wars movie that came out, there's been like it's a huge existential crisis for all Star Wars fans, and it seems like sort of like a religious collapse, like where it's not just about the movie being bad, but it's about like their spiritual worldview or what you know they're trying to use this as spirituality, and it just they realize it doesn't work anymore. Well, that's not surprising. That's not surprising. You know, I haven't seen the latest Star Wars. I haven't seen a Star Wars movie in years. They got to be uh, just too, too, too weird. I saw the first one when it came out in 1976. I thought it was just kind of a derivative pastiche of a whole bunch of different movies, like Stagecoach and, you know, Casablanca, all these kind of scenes just shot off into outer space. But uh, there's a really good movie about this called uh, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, with... Uh... It's a Star Trek parody. Yeah, it's like Tim Allen. Yeah. It's a brilliant movie, absolutely brilliant movie. And it's one of the best movies that Hollywood's ever produced, in my humble opinion. But it's about these people who, you know, derive their uh, reality, their identity from these figures. You know, these these uh, mythic figures because they, they have this vacuum, the spiritual vacuum in their lives is being filled by these consumer items. That's, and there's ultimately an affirmation of that at the end of the movie. Like they don't like break away from that. the The alien characters they they accept like they're, uh, you know, anointed by the TV characters to you know give them the right to like form their own society or. Yeah, yeah. I've been fascinated by this idea lately of categories of the mind, as opposed to categories of reality, and how you can identify yourself with a with a fiction. Um, uh, it's an, an, an interesting idea, interesting idea of where people, people are looking, uh, a, a, a lady by the name of Mary Eberstadt just wrote a book about identity politics. And what you're seeing uh, is the rise of identity politics because people's identity has been stolen. It's like massive identity theft. She traces it to the sexual revolution and the destruction of the family. I trace it more to social engineering that took the social engineering that took place in the 50s and the 60s. When they, it, it, it's in the slaughter of cities, which is where I talk about how the Catholic ethnics were deprived of their identity when they were driven out of their neighborhoods by ethnic cleansing. So they, you were Irish when you lived in North Philadelphia, but then when you moved to the suburbs after the blacks moved in, you became white. And white is not an identity. It, white is the absence of an identity or a negative identity. And you can only be white if someone else is black. This is, you, this you is exactly be... how I like what I feel about the white nationalists or like the nationalist project. Like the white identity is like a completely negative thing. Like it has no positive aspect to it. It's just like we're not anything else. So we're like yeah, automatically if you, white. If you don't know what you are, then you could probably tell yourself you're white. Or something like that. And, and the, uh, the other point of this that I've tried to make is that this is the identity that, that they love to have you adopt, they being the oligarchs, uh, because as soon as you adopt that identity, you're doomed to failure. 
And the best example of that was Charlottesville, uh, where, you know, you have, we have a constitution that guarantees us the freedom of speech and the right to assemble. And none of those rights apply to white people. And Charlottesville was proof of that. You don't have any rights as a white person. And so therefore, why would you identify with something that's going to doom your project to failure? Why would you do that? That's what I really don't understand about these people who, you know, try to base society around, uh, you know, purely ethnic identity of whiteness. But I feel like that ethnic identity has like no historical foundation to it whatsoever. It's not an ethnic identity. It's I a know. racial identity. It has nothing. That, there's nothing that, to an, it. An ethnic identity exists uh, because it's based on reality, which is basically language for the most part. Like in, in, in a country like Tanzania, there are six, 76 different ethnic groups. They all look exactly the same. They're all black, but they speak different languages. And that's how the, that's the criterion of ethnic identity. Now, it's more complicated in the United States for reasons I go into in a, uh, an e-book I wrote called uh, Sam Francis and the Triple Melting Pot. Sam Francis never knew who he was. So he was he started out as a, a born in the South in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, and then he became a conservative and then conservatism blew up and then he became a white boy. And then he just before he died, he became a Catholic. So he had this identity crisis for his entire life. And when I tried to explain this to the white boys at the San Francisco Memorial, they, you would not believe the uproar that this created uh, uproar. I mean, it was so intense uh the, it basically blew up the whole the whole paleo conservative movement in, in one explosion and because i i feel like going back to like fantasy is that every form of fantasy was just an attempt to create like a national identity the, and like that's the original project of like what fantasy writers were trying to do especially like based on like the romantics and like their idea of you know, how rationality, like, destroyed, you know, a common basis of Christendom and religion and how they needed to basically create, like, a new mythology in order to escape modernity. And I think that's true. I think there was a, a moment where there were national epics that would create a national identity. I think that uh, the, the Nibelungen League was a national epic, the Edda... Uh, I think that the Koran is a national epic for the uh, Arabian nation. Is it possible for there to be a, a national epic of white people? No, no, it's impossible. What would it be? I mean, what is there something? Are, are we talking about something specific? Is there somewhere that's trying to do this? This this Aryan nation, whatever it is. First of all, let, I think let's, that's what let's, like the national Europe, like save Europa people. I mean, they don't actually like try to make an epic or something. They don't try to make something new, but all of their propaganda, all their materials directed at, uh, you know, conjuring an image of some sort of epic, like white person society of like Roman statues and things, if you know what I mean. Well, let's, let's look at the South, birth of a nation. In many ways, that was the epic of the South. Uh, it was made into a movie. It was it was the epic that sort of gave the narrative to those defeated Southerners after after the war, allowed them to regroup and mobilize against the Yankee, the carpetbagger, that type of thing. That was a piece of literature that sort of served that role. 
do you think that like the liberalization of culture has basically destroyed its ability of a lot of these a lot of the content and a lot of the material that was used in the past is that, that is that viable anymore to do anything with to like repurpose in a way that like escapes the you know narrative domination that we have with like Hollywood and the media I is it theoretically possible? I mean, yes, but it depends on what you're talking about. Are we ever going to go back to the time where we are the the primitive ethnos and the word for our group is is mankind and every other group is a barbarian? Uh, uh, no, we're never going to go back to that time. We're never going to go back to that time. What we're what we're fighting for right now is the possibility for identity. Do we have it? Is there a we anymore? The the rise of identity politics in America has led to the extinction of we as Americans. We as Americans, that doesn't exist anymore. We don't believe in America anymore. I mean, Donald Trump tried to resurrect it, make America great again. He failed. He failed to do it because he because lots of it's too complex to go into right now. But he failed to bring about the alternative. He got elected because Hillary Clinton uh, ran on the, the the Constitution, the platform of the Democratic Party, which is identity politics. So you have to be, you know, black or you have to be Latino or a homosexual or whatever you know, in order to have an identity. And then you're incorporated in this federation. But there's no uh, universal of American anymore. That's the problem. So we have to give you an example in South Bend, Indiana. As soon as we got a homosexual mayor, people stopped celebrating the 4th of July and we had a gay pride parade instead. This is the dissolution. So once you have that situation, there are people who identified as Americans. And now there's no America to identify with. And so there's this huge identity crisis right now. That's what Mary Eberstadt wrote about in her book. It's many ways that you could call it identity theft. And so there's naturally going to be a group of people who are going to look for some type of compensation and find it in this fantasy world uh, where they, you know, like I'm Thor, you know, I'm this great, powerful warrior. I mean, Thor is a Marvel character, too. I know. I yeah. know. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So these people actually do identify with this because, and the, the point is that all of these characters have super uh, kind of preternatural powers. Well, that's because the guys who are they're written for are sitting on their couch playing video games and feel completely impotent when it comes to life, <laughs> when it comes to taking on life. The, the, the girls are the same way. Did you ever see a girl in a fantasy movie who couldn't do karate, for example, <laughs> and pick up huge guys and just throw them across the room and smash the wall down? I mean, this, Nietzsche has a point that he makes about how, like in ancient times for like a Roman man, like acting was like the same thing as like the conception to act. Like there was only one one thing, like action wasn't something that was separate. And... I feel like now with our culture, with like these fa- fantasy movies, it's totally like that process been, has been externalized. Like action is now completely within the realm of like superheroes and everyone, all the viewers and consumers of this are like reduced merely to being like the passive part of action in a way. 
Yeah, well, Conan the Barbarian was the beginning of this, don't you think? I mean, in terms of films, it was one of the early films celebrating this type of lifestyle. And uh, who, who, who's the guy who, do, who did this? JF, did JFK and Oliver, uh, Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone. There's an epigraph from Nietzsche uh, at the beginning of the movie. So this is clearly some type of uh, appeal to this new neo-paganism, uh, which was celebrated by, by Nietzsche as well, which is all negative because all it is is rejection of Christ because you don't like it. You want to do what you want to do and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a rejection of Logos. I mean, how can the Logos be like reaffirmed? Like, is there any, like, I was talking about this with Jay Dyer too, is like, is there any possibility of like a sort of Christendom reestablishing itself like through the Catholic Church? Of course there is. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's happening right now. There are people, I mean, I, I played some small role in this. There are people write to me every day saying, I was addicted to pornography, but after I read Libido Dominandi, I realized what was going on, and now I'm happily married. This is, uh, uh, maybe I left out some intermediate steps. So I, I got baptized, I went to church, and the grace of the sacrament helped me to, to resist this, and now I'm happily married. So there's, I don't want to omit any of the intermediary steps here. Because I've told people to do all of these things. Because I think possible. Of... it's not only possible; it's happening right now. So there was uh, no nut November, a boycott of pornography, <laughs> and then uh, lo and behold, uh, Charlie Kirk and his uh, cr crowd of coke suckers and commissars uh, get word from their controllers, and guess what? Glenn Beck shows up at a Turning Point conference and says, "Don't think about banning pornography." <laughs> Why? Who who put this in your head, Glenn? Is this because you're a genius, or because someone yanked your chain? Is it? Do they have an argument about it being for free speech, like pornography is free speech? Yeah, look at my. Uh, I did a debate with Sticks Hexenhammer, whatever his name is. Uh, this uh, a, a, a fantasy name, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, you can type in those two names and you can see the, the debate with him. And my opening statement uh, has been published uh, in uh, at UNS Review. So you can type in, go to UNS Review, Pornography, E. Michael Jones, Pornography and Social Control. And you can see the argument. And basically that was the argument. But, I mean, he's just following in the footsteps of libertarians. It's libertarianism. Uh, and so you have the Cato Institute, which is funded by Koch Brothers Money. And you got a guy named John Stagliano, who's a pornography producer, and he's part of the Cato Institute. So it's they're both the same thing. So when he gets busted for obscene material in 2010, the Cato Institute comes to his rescue and says, this is all about free speech. No, it isn't. It's about social control. It's about the oligarchs paying stooges at places like the Cato Institute to spout off nonsense about free speech so that you can get young people who are with crushing, being crushed by student loan debt to distract themselves by watching pornography. So it's all purely a form of social And I would even extend that like beyond just like, uh, you know, actual sexual pornography. I feel like really all of our culture basically follows the same pattern and is a 
almost a form of pornography at this point. And it's interesting that you talk about libertarianism because uh, we were talking about this the other day. Is uh, I, f- I feel like what people don't know about like, like Austrian economics is that the point of Austrian economics was to destroy like national sovereignty because they imagined a world in which there was total free immigration and free yeah. spread of capital. And so well, they were... One they, of the founding members of the Cato Institute was, was Murray Rothbard, uh, one of the pillars of Austrian school economics. And if you read his book on money, which I did when I was doing Baron Metal, My History of Capitalism, you'll see that it's basically Jewish economics. It's basically defending uh, the people who own the gold and also the people who are the users, the users who own gold. And they, they believe in the gold standard. Believe it or not, they believe in the gold standard. If there's ever an obsolete form of, of, of uh, economics, it's one based on the gold standard as the money supply. But they believe it because the Jews will accumulate gold, and this is what this is about. This, by the way, also gets into Tolkien. Early Tolkien, The Hobbit. It's very clear in, in The Hobbit that the, the, uh, the dwarves are Jews uh, and that they like to accumulate gold. And there's that whole mythology there, and it, it made it into uh, Peter Jackson's movie of The Hobbit, where <laughs> I think Bilbo then turns and says, well, you don't have a country around. This is not in the book, but Peter Jackson kind of uh, in, injected a little bit of Zionism into The Hobbit. And so not only were the Jews hoarding gold, but they were going to have their own country and blah, blah, blah. That's that- what led me to write that that uh, that ebook, uh, Tolkien's Failed Quest. <laughs> Because I, I feel like that's exactly what has happened with a lot of the the culture because, like, we have, you know, the Austrian economics, and they want to destroy national sovereignty so they can get sort of a global financial system in place. And what we have now with our culture and, like, Star Wars and the Peter Jackson movies and all that stuff is that, you know, this is their attempt to replace, like, individual national cultures with, like, a totalizing like world culture of like consumption that is going to be able to, you know, unite China with the West. And that's the big thing that they're like really yeah, concerned part with. Of the mythology of the internet as well. You know, whenever I, I what, are they, what are they, Microsoft com- commercial? I don't have a television, but whenever I lift weights, I have to watch television. And there are these commercials about the world being united through people on their computers you know, I'm grateful. Look, we're, we're using computers right now, aren't we? So I'm not going to badmouth computers, but it's no substitute for a religion. And that's precisely what the problem here is. You've got this mythology that's going to turn technology into a religion, and that's going to lead to disappointment. And that's exactly what a lot of, like, the science proponents now are, like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and the like, the science propagandists, like, I feel like are That's not. That's a good term for them. That's a good term for them. I feel like there's no. They don't care about science at all. Like they're mostly. It's an ideology that they're promoting. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, the first the first chapter of the Logos book is called. Uh, it's on uh, Bertrand Russell, who was uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan and Bill Nye before these guys were born. He was the guy, and, and what was science? Well, science was the explanation of ultimate reality. And what was the ultimate reality? It was little balls bumping into each other. It was known as atomism. Uh, got it, Russell got it from Democritus. Uh, it was atoms and the void, which was the basis of what we would call materialism. 
the ironic aspect of this is that materialism exploded <laughs> on Bertrand Russell's watch, and he actually knew that it was happening. But he never changed his philosophy to accommodate. Because I'm talking right now about Heisenberg and uh, his indeterminacy principle. And that's exactly what they, uh, the science propagandists, they don't like to talk about like philosophy of science. Is no. that they, they try to discourage you. Neil deGrasse Tyson speaks out and says, don't read philosophy of science. But like Heisenberg and those, those physicists, they all were deeply interested in that, those questions. Well, Heisenberg was the flower of German culture. Uh, his father taught uh, Greek at the gymnasium. Heisenberg could read Greek in the original, and he read Plato. And at a certain point, he understood that Plato was right. He gave up on the whole atom thing because ad an atom is a contradictory term. It means something that can't be split. That's what it means etymologically. Well, Heisenberg was involved in splitting the atom. And one of the results of splitting the atom was the atomic bomb, uh, as well as uh, energy, producing energy. But what he realized is, well, you can keep splitting it. And so we have these big, ridiculous things like uh, called CERN, which I think is like 26 miles in diameter. particle. get mad at me for saying this, but like, I don't believe in subatomic, like particle physics. And I it's for exactly that reason. I feel like it's like something going on within human rationality that like it's trying to ground itself and it just can't so it just keeps basically splitting the atom into smaller and smaller parts well if you if you're if you're asking about some ultimate irreducible particle they don't exist and this is what heisenberg realized so you can keep splitting it and then you get to a point and suddenly it disappears into energy so there's nothing there there's nothing there if by there you mean uh matter well what is there is obviously something there well, what is it? Well, he came to the conclusion it was a form, the platonic form, which I think is a better explanation than the one that Democritus came up with. So, for example, what is the form? Aristotle took the notion of form and he applied it to the, the human soul and said the soul is the form of the body. That means it's its first act. So he said if the eye were a, uh, a body, its soul would be seeing. If the eye were a hatchet, its soul would be chopping. And so what you have here is you have a, a body which is made up of molecules, and these molecules are forever coming into existence and going out of existence. And so by the time after seven years, there's not any material continuity between who you were and who you are. Because it's all been replaced, but according to a form. So it's like watching a river. You look at that river, and it's always changing, and it's always the same. And that's the paradox that uh, Heisenberg had to come to at the conclusion, and it completely exploded materialism. And that's actually interesting because I feel like the science propagandists, like they want to suppress that aspect of of thinking about science. Like they don't want people to go and look at Plato or anything like that. Like I feel like that almost plays into you know, the destruction of identity is that these these people do have that belief that like everything in your body replaces itself in like seven years or whatever. And so are you really even the same person? Is there any basis for identity? Yes, there is. It's called the soul. It's not matter. Which there they is no completely deny. basis for your identity. Look at the way you work. 
you were you were once I'm, I'm holding up my hand. I mean, you were once that small. You were you were very small uh, and you were growing inside your mother's womb. But there is a direct continuity between that uh, and that multicellular thing and who you are today. Well, how is that possible? It's not matter. It has to be some type of form. And we call that form traditionally the soul. There's a sort of um, uh, formula that keeps you together, that holds you together. And when that formula uh, ceases to be, or when, when, it, when it, uh, it, it ceases its connection with the body, it's called death. And this is exactly what the science proponents wanted to deny, is that they want to tell you that you don't have any soul. They want to reject any idea of like, you know, abstract forms outside of a completely material reality of atoms hitting each other. Yeah, well, that's this is completely obsolete, even from the point of view of physics. In other words, it's 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 based on an obsolete understanding of physics. So why should I believe it? It never made sense anyway. It was an extrapolation from physics. We're always extrapolating, creating categories of the mind out of things that don't do not justify that type of generalization. So now we're just stuck in this predicament of uh, basically having this global monoculture of like, you know, the the same people who are really into like Neil deGrasse Tyson, those are the consumers of Star Wars and things. Those are the Redditors out in the world. And they they have this completely like attempt to create like a new identity that is doomed to failure. And they have in the process basically destroyed any historically based or ethnically based identity that people have previously used to like organize their, their society. Job, their job is to do that and give you some type of pseudoscientific explanation for your own uh, self-destruction, your own reduction. You know, like all it is, what's all it is? The universe is all there is. How do you know that, Carl? How do you know that? And as a matter of fact, that's contradictory to say that because the universe could not bring itself into existence. If it, to do that, it had to exist before it existed and it can't, that, that's impossible. So how can you say that the universe is all there is? It's a contradictory statement. And you've, you've talked no, about no like, was, what was that? I said no one was smart enough to call, call him one or no one got the microphone to, to make that public. Uh, the four atheists, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, so about 10 years ago, all making similar preposterous statements based on uh, bogus science and mumbo jumbo and, and, and a complete absence of any type of philosophical thought. So Daniel Dennett, the only philosopher of that group, said the world created itself out of nothing or something very small. That has got to be one of the stupidest statements in the history of philosophy. Okay, I've already explained to you if it, it can't create itself out of nothing. Okay, because it would have to exist before it existed, and that's impossible. And the second part is, or something very small. Well, then if it's something very small, it's still the universe. <laughs> and so you're you're talking about the same thing here. It's a tautology. It's a circular argument. And that was the philosopher of that group. So this is completely stupid. And you've talked about like uh, some of the statements that like, Jewish pornographers have made 
about like why they make pornography. And I, I feel like the same thing applies to like Hollywood. And then you have all these people like that they also are in the Hollywood system. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson is basically like TV's go-to science guy. Oh, and you have, yeah. And they, they consult on movies. Like they, they make movies like interstellar and they bring in these people to explain science. And so, I mean, I feel like all this is connected to each other in a way that is intended to basically erode uh, identity, like you were right. saying. So, so let, let's get back to the beginning here. What are they talking about? Ultimate reality. What they're saying is, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I know what ultimate reality is, and because I know that, I can crush any argument that you make that I don't like. Because science says, and that crushes your argument. This is the this is the purpose of this. This is what Bertrand Russell Bertrand Russell said it specifically. And you read the preface to one of the books he wrote in the 1920s. The the publisher is saying, "Well, you'll have to tell us what ultimate reality is." Well, that means I can crush any argument you can come up with. I can rule the world because I know what ultimate reality is. That's the purpose. That's why they're there. That's why they're paid to do this. And we were talking to uh, Jay Dyer. He's an Orthodox Christian, and he is a proponent of using transcendental arguments. And he, so his his position is that you know in Orthodoxy they they don't treat God as something within the realm of like metaphysical reality, and they can you know want to use only transcendental arguments to reference God like Kant did. And do you think that God for God for you is, you know, really some like a metaphysical category that like de definitely exists? You can prove the existence of God with natural reason. You can't prove anything about his being because your mind can't know a, a something that far above you. And the only way you'll know something about the internal being of God is if God reveals it himself to you. But they're not contradictory. And the, the, the thing that links both of these things together is the prologue to St. John's Gospel, where he says, in the beginning there was Logos. Now, the Greek audience would understand exactly what he meant there. Okay, that's, you know, order to the universe, philosophy, all these things. And St. John is saying, yes, we're... We're not going to despise what you did. It was, it's worth preserving. But we're going to take it a step further. We're going to raise it to a new level. And Logos was with God. Okay? And then he says, and Logos was God. Well, the third one, that's stunning. Uh, because suddenly all that stuff, this is something that uh, Aristotle struggled with. Both Aristotle and Plato struggled with this idea. Uh, and he's saying, no, Logos is not just geometry, it's a person. It's a manifestation of, of the divine. And Logos is with God. So he's God and he's with God. And what that means is, uh, ultimately, the Trinity. There are three persons in one God. And that solves the imminent, transcendent problem that Greek philosophy had. And opens up a whole new world. And at this point, easy to get with it and your culture progresses, or you do not get with it, and you end up like Islam, uh, where science should have developed, but it did not, or you end up with something like 
China, where you have Tao, which is the, the word they use to translate the gospel of St. John. That's the word they use to translate the Greek word logos. But Tao, was, it, it just never, it never got very far for reasons that I think are really interesting. I'm reading a biography of Matteo Ricci now and uh, listening to him, his description, the author's description of his discussions with the mandarins about the ultimate, the ultimate order of the universe, the ultimate reality. And they were all uh, basically derailed by the influence of Buddhism. And bo because Buddhism uh, basically denied the principle of non-contradiction as they understood it in China. So either you get with the program or you do not, or the, the, the train that is known as human history leaves the station without you. And that's what happened to every place except Europe, because Europe had Catholicism at its basis. I think that's the problem that we're like ultimately facing today is like we're stuck in this modern period of alienation, which is based on rationalism and which basically has destroyed any kind of foundation for a unified culture. And we're trying to replace this with everyone's trying to replace it with something, whether it's paganism or whether it's Hollywood. Well, I and think all these projects are... This is exactly the point. So in a certain point, you've got science that says the universe is this dead assemblage of balls bumping into each other. And oh, by the way, your brain is too. And when you think you, uh, you're you in love with that young lady, all, it's, all this happening is that hormones are causing the balls to bump faster together. And that's a totally intolerable universe. And so you say, well, the hell with it. I'm going to create my own fantasy world as an alternative. And that's what leads to all this type of stuff that we've been talking about. I feel like there's a, the danger though is in collapse. Like I'm sort of interested in the idea of like ecumenical futurism. And so we have this whole project in the West of modernity that is like doomed to not be able to ground itself in anything. And then you, I guess you would say that's like the question of either getting with the logos or not. And yes. so we're not gonna, I feel like most people are not going to get with it. So ultimately, like, I feel like we are going to have, you know, a spiritual collapse of all of this stuff is going to fail and there's going to need to be something in the future in like the postmodern era to replace it. And I don't know, like, how Christianity is going to form, like what form it's going to take. replace the logos. That's it. That's all there is. That's all there is. OK, so what you're seeing now is the collapse of these basically that fantasy world known as uh, white nationalism or whatever you want to call it. The white boy fantasy is collapsing as we speak. Charlottesville was a blow to that notion that you can have, you have some type of identity because we're all white and we're all in this together. And this is what it's, a lot of romantic philosophers went through was a lot of them like converted to Catholicism and later in life because they were all absolutely. motivated by that. I, the idea of like, and it wasn't just like they ultimately decided on Catholicism as like the best avenue, but a lot of them were coming from Protestant backgrounds and even thinking about like reun reuniting the church and like having one Christianity again. Do you think that that will happen in the future? Yeah, of course it has to happen. And and what you're talking about is the difference between Schelling and, and Hegel, uh, because Hegel wanted to hold on to this fantasy uh, that you could reduce uh, the. Uh, Religion within the bounds of philosophy alone. That was the title of the book by Kant. That was the Enlightenment fantasy. 
And Schelling was smart enough to realize that at a certain point, you can all, you have a choice, okay? You can say, all right, I'm going to be self-sufficient. We're just going to do this by reason alone. And you will end up stunted because you did not accept the fact that there is a higher logos that you can only accept through revelation. So you can't do it on your own. And, and you'll end up uh, in the dead end that Hegel ended up in uh, because in order to, you have to accept it. Hegel, look, the Hegel's dialectic was basically his attempt to render the Trinity in Enlightenment terms. But you can't render the Trinity in Enlightenment terms because you can't render the Trinity in any terms other than itself. That's the paradox here. And so you have to accept some type of limit to human reason for human reason to advance. That was the great genius of uh, Thomas Aquinas, who solved this problem, the faith-reason problem, and then allowed reason to advance. And it, it, it all collapsed within 100 years of his death, when you had William of Ockham, and the, the evil fruit of William of Ockham was uh, Martin Luther, which was an attack on reason, which the West, has never, we've never, the West has never recovered from that attack on reason. Hegel is an example of what I'm talking about. He succumbed to that irrationality for the same reason Luther did. Couldn't control his passions. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, uh, he said, I'm going to make wrong right. And that is the unforgivable sin. And we're still living with the consequence of that. I discuss all this in my book, Logos Rising. And that's what's interesting about fantasy, going back to that, is that that's like, uses this medieval fantasy setting. And then you have Novalis who wrote this uh, essay called, you know, Christendom in Europe, where I feel like that was really the idea of like, this why fantasy takes place in a medieval setting is because it was like trying to imagine more of like a future state of like a reun, uh, a uh, like a reunited church that would rule yes. over all of Europe. Yes. Yes. I think that is, that's, that's a, that's going to be a reality sooner or later because Protestantism has expired. And you see, like in Scandinavian countries, like I did that review of Midsummer, which is a, a, an explanation of what happens when Protestantism expires and suddenly paganism takes its place. Or you can watch The, the Wicker Man, another example of this uh, description of what happens when Christianity expires. The Protestant version of Christianity was doomed to expire and its shelf life ran out after about 500 years. And so in the year 2000, this Lutheran church was disestablished as the official church of Sweden. And at that point, you have the rise of these neo-pagan uh, surrogates. That's what Midsummer's about. And that's exactly what, uh, you know, Hitler wanted to do, too. Right. Yeah. And why, why did Hitler want to do that? Very simple, because he realized he couldn't unite Germany because of the Protestant Reformation. There were Catholics and there were Protestants, and it was impossible to unite them. So let's go make an end run around Christianity. Let's go back to before Christianity. Let's use Wagner to create these this myth of this pagan Germany. And we, I mean, he's a genius. Wagner was a yeah. genius. He was the genius. And, and uh, Tolkien, no matter what he says, stole the idea of the ring from Wagner but couldn't use it, couldn't make it coherent. That's the whole point of my book on uh, Tolkien's failed quest. He got the idea of the ring. The ring, the idea of the ring, if you, I read Tolkien's book 
when I was 16 years old, and I thought it was a great book, but I couldn't figure out what the hell is this ring about? And I never figured it out, because you can't figure it out, because it's an incoherent symbol, because he lifted it out of a matrix that he could not use, would not use. And the matrix I'm talking about is the Rheingold. Well, and you watch the the prelude, the beginning of Das Rheingold, and within five minutes you understand. I I know what the ring is. I know what the ring is. It's Alberich. He stole the Rheingold. He privatized the wealth of the nation. Alberich is a Jew. Everybody knew that. And he took the gold from the Prince of Hesse Castle, just like uh, Meyer Amschel Rothschild. And he turned it into a ring to enslave people, otherwise known as usury. Now, uh, Wagner, like Marx, confused usury, which is a sin, with capital, which is neutral. Uh, and that's part of what's going on here. There's all that uh, aura of industrialization in the beginning of the Rheingold, in Alberich's uh, little, uh, where he has all the dwarves tinkering away with their hammers, making him wealthy down in the... Uh, in the basement. Uh, and this is what Tolkien uh, absorbed. But Tolkien is writing this on the eve of World War II when Hitler is raving about the Jews and Tolkien doesn't like that. Well, that's problematic for Tolkien, not for Wagner. Wagner had a completely coherent idea there and Tolkien did not. And that actually connects with an interesting thing in Goethe's Faust in part two, when Mephistopheles creates money. Right. Familiar with that part? I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah and I, that that's like a whole like it's like it's like the same the same principle, but Goethe imagines it as like al alchemic. It is, it is, it's magic. It is magic. Yeah, and George Soros said the same thing. He said modern finance is alchemy. It is, it is alchemy. I mean, that's what I, like I, fractional I, reserve banking is. That's like pa how the Federal Reserve operates. Yeah, pa paper, paper money, uh, uh, they're related concepts. Uh, paper money was a great breakthrough. Uh, uh, Goethe is talking about uh, John Law, uh, who took over the Bank of France and basically saved the French economy. The only problem with paper money is the, the, the size of the economy is the limit of the amount of money that you can print. If you go over that, you're going to create inflation, and then if it, it'll become hyperinflation, and then people will lose the, uh, faith in the currency, and at that point it collapses, and it comes down to be worth nothing. But they, they had to learn how to regulate this, and they didn't. The first guy who did it was a genius. It was a gambler and a genius, John Law, and that's who Goethe had in mind in the second part of Faust. Yeah, uh, I don't know what you think about capitalism in the in the future. I mean, capitalism is state-sponsored usury, so it's doomed to fail because usury is doomed to fail. We are living in a culture that is ridden, corrupted by usury. Uh, uh, usury and Jews go together. Uh, Andrew Joyce did, just did a book on uh, an article in Uns talking about uh, Jew vulture capitalism is Jewish capitalism. Jewish capitalism is usury. Capitalism is state-sponsored usury. This means that every all surplus, it's also the, the uh, systematic appropriation of all surplus value. They're one and the same thing. The way the, the, uh, the user uh, accumulates, uh, steals surplus value is through compound interest. 
So all your money, basically, from your point of view, you you are a baker and you take flour and you create bread. And that's surplus value because bread is more valuable than flour. And then the user takes it all because you're in debt uh, and and you have to pay off your debts. Otherwise, he takes your business. And this is exactly what I, I feel about uh, Marxism is basically is just, you know, the ultimate form of capitalism. And that's why I think it really fails and why, you know, as the Marxists believe, there's never going to be a sort of transformation of capitalism, like on its own into. It's, it's, it's based on materialism. And as a result, it, 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 they don't understand that, uh, <clears throat> like, there's nothing wrong with a hammer. I mean, you can you can murder the old lady next door with a hammer, but that's not the fault of the hammer. That's that's the same thing with capital. There's nothing wrong with capital. Capital is something that you use. You can use it uh, uh, to promote a just society. You can use it to support your family. You can use it to do good or you can use it to do evil. Usury is a sin. It's always evil. And Marx simply could not figure this out because he was blinded by his own materialism. I feel like that's absolutely the case because Marx's whole point is that, you know, there's going to be a postmodern, post-capitalist society called communism that's going to spring up and that it's going to be developed out of capitalism through the process of capitalism. And that yeah. but he also postulates that there's another a spiritual revolution of some kind has to go along with that, which is like what, you know, the Bolsheviks like they objectified it into like a political revolution. But for Marx, it was more important than that because he had to, he realized that there needed to be a spiritual transformation of humanity at a, at a deeper level, deeper than, you know, materialism. But he, well, that, he's contradicting himself. If you're a materialist, there's no spirit, there's nothing spiritual. But that's where he, like how his philosophy developed, where I think in like the early Marx is that he realizes that there is the need for like a spiritual revolution of humanity but then as he develops, he goes in the more materialist economic direction of trying to become like the next Adam Smith. And, the, you know, well, all that is lost out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, part of the tragedy uh, of what happened there. I, I, dealt, I deal with all this stuff in uh, my book, Baron Metal, including Wagner and the, uh, the, ring, the ring cycle. Anyway, yeah. it's been good. I got to get off. It's been good talking to you. Yeah, it's been great, great time. I really appreciate you coming on. It's always fun to talk to you. And I don't know, do you have a? Do you want to promote your Twitter account? Tell people where to find you at or anything. Uh, go to culturewars.com. It's the best place to see all my books, and you can put in an advance order for Logos Rising, which will be out soon. I'll have to. I'll check that one out when it comes out, and I'll do a review of it. Good, and I'll talk to you then if you want to. Oh, great. That would be amazing. Thanks so much for talking to, uh, talking to us, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. Have a great Bye. night.